Father, we come together to praise you. We come together to understand your word and we come together to to know the the deeper fullness of your spirit within us. Let your word be planted deep in our lives and may we understand just a bit more of what it means that Christ is born. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. It may be November, but uh, there's no doubt that uh, Christmas season is here. Uh, If you did any shopping over the weekend, you know the Christmas season is here. In fact, if you've been in the store the last month, two months, uh, I saw a sign at the Marketplace Mall, I don't know, a number of weeks ago that said, Santa's coming, November 13th. November 13th? Are you kidding me? That's a long ways away. But we keep inching it more forward, more and more. And we have our ideas about what Christmas should be. We have traditions that often involve family, often involves food, often involves gifts of some kind. And in some, some years are better than others. Some families are better than others. Um, and, and for some people, it truly is the most wonderful time of the year. For other people, it's anything but that. But whatever our perspective about Christmas and the holiday and celebrating that, all of that is pretty much our perspective. And that's okay. But there is something about understanding God's perspective that has a way of shifting and changing our perspective. And it transformed, transforms our perspective. And it's the great blessing of Advent. It's why we celebrate Advent, to to help us during the midst of all the things that we're doing that are not bad, but just in the midst of all of these things that we have a a time, a moment to focus on God's perspective about this event we call Christmas. It's this perspective, it's God's perspective that that John is is attempting to communicate in the letter that he writes that we call 1 John. Listen to the opening words of this letter. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we've heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, touched him with our own hands. He's the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. And we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. John wants his readers to understand and consequently enjoy the amazing fruit of Christ's appearing. And for some reason, because he writes this, they are not. They're missing it. And John wants to change that. 
He wants them to understand that the coming of Christ opens the door to joy like they have never experienced before. And that's right in line with what we hear in the Gospels. Remember the shepherds say to the angel, to the, uh, the angels say to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. A Savior has been born to you. But what is it about Christ's coming that brings such great joy? What is it about the coming of Christ that, that changes our perspective, even about life? But John tells us in this letter that there are some things that happen because Christ appears, because Christ has come. And those things give us a reason to rejoice like nothing else. And over the course of, of the Sundays of this Advent, we're going to look at, at some of these. And we begin today in chapter 3, where John declares an important truth about Christ's coming and our sin. Begin the reading in chapter 3 of 1 John with verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Let's be honest, we, we all struggle with sin. Sin is a real problem. John calls it lawlessness. Now, for some of us, that word lawlessness might conjure up images of the Old West. Maybe it does, but it, this word has the sense of rebellion, disobedience. And it is typically a deliberate action. It's in this context that we find sin is pushing aside the law of God. And this word is, is written in such a way that it has this sense of committing sin, practicing sin, and we do that in a variety of ways. Sometimes it is just outright rebellion. We know what we're supposed to do, and we say, no, I'm not going to do that. And we do something else. But more often than not, for those of us who make claims to follow Jesus, our, our sin is a bit more subtle. We find ways to justify our sin. We explain our sin. We define even what it means to sin. I, I saw an example of that just recently. Uh, Jim Calhoun, who's been the head coach at the University of Connecticut since 1986 and has brought that program to national prominence in, in the world of basketball, uh, has just been accused of some recruiting violations. No idea if they're true or not because it's not been, they haven't gotten that far in it. But earlier this fall, he went to an investigative uh, moment before the, the NCAA investigating committee. And he came out of that meeting and he was being interviewed and he was asked all kinds of questions about the whole thing. And, and I don't know if he meant it to come out this way or not, but he said, we may have broken rules, but we didn't cheat. And I thought, huh? Wait a second. We may have broken rules, but we didn't cheat. I think what he meant was that they may have unknowingly done something wrong, even though they didn't mean to. And maybe he's right. But I thought that comment is so indicative of how we often describe our sin. Well, I may not have done exactly what God wanted me to do, but I didn't sin. I, I, I may not have done what I was 
what I knew I should have done, but it wasn't sin. You know, sin is the big stuff. But the reality is, Paul, John says, sin is lawlessness. And even in our best moments, we struggle with rebellion and disobedience against, against God, against his commands, and against his will. And we may do well for a while, but then we lose our temper. We hurt someone. Uh, you know, we make wrong decisions. We lie, cheat, steal. Maybe not overtly, but we're guilty nonetheless. We lust. We covet. We're jealous, envious, greedy, selfish. The list is as long as human existence. But whatever we want to call it, the scriptures are clear. It's sin. And the great burden for those who care about God and and who care about trying to to deal with sin is that there is this burden about what in the world we can possibly do about our sin. No matter how much we try, we cannot get rid of our sin. It is as though we are chained to it. And sometimes the chains feel a little looser when we work at them. But the chains are still there. And we try and we try and we try. And we, we want to be free. And we keep trying ourselves and we keep failing miserably. But we keep trying and we keep failing. And the scriptures tell us so clearly that God understands our dilemma. God understands the fact that we are chained and we can't do much about it. And God knows that we need help. And his solution isn't to condemn us because we aren't strong enough. His solution isn't to condemn us because we're not smart enough or spiritual enough. His solution is Jesus. Incarnation is God's answer to our struggle with sin. And so John writes in the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as the message puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Your neighborhood, my neighborhood. And this is John's point here in his, in his letter. You know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. And that's been the purpose of Jesus coming from the beginning to take away our sin. The angel tells Joseph, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel tells the shepherds today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. John the Baptist has been telling people about Jesus. And then one day he sees Jesus coming and he proclaims, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's why Jesus comes. It's one thing for God to say, I'm going to send Jesus to forgive your sin. It's another thing for him to say, I'm going to send Jesus to free the bonds, the chains of your sin. The people to whom John is writing must be struggling with this. He says to them a a number of times, talks to them about Christ taking away their sin. 
And maybe their struggle is that sin doesn't matter, but I suspect that perhaps their struggle is there's not much that can be done about it. We've been trying all this time and nothing seems to work. And John says, no, no, no. Something can be done about it, not by you, but by God. And in fact, he's done it. It's why Jesus appeared. And you don't have to be chained all of your life to sin. You can be set free through the one who is born in Bethlehem. He comes, he appears to take away your sin. That word take away really means to carry off. And it reminds me of, again, of what John says in or John the Baptist says that, that John the Gospel writer records that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And it makes me go back to Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, what we call Yom Kippur. On this high and holy day, two goats are brought to the high priest, and the first is sacrificed for the sins of the people. But the second one is not sacrificed. Here's what Leviticus 16 says. Aaron shall bring forward the live goat. And he lays to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion, lawlessness of the Israelites, all their sins. Wouldn't you love to have been there as he's reciting all the sins of all the people? I suspect that took a little while. And he put, this, and he put them on the goat's head. And then he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. And the man shall release it in the desert. Now you can understand why John's words about Jesus coming to take away our sins would have been such a graphic picture for the Jews. And Jesus comes and he is both the lamb who is sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins and also the lamb who carries our sins, as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. You know, as I ponder that, what God has done for us in Christ, God doesn't do that blindly. God knows all about the darkness in our lives. God knows all the choices for sin that we make. God knows all about our tendency to self-centeredness that leads us to brush aside God. And he comes anyway. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't come and then say, whoa, these people are really in a mess. I guess I need to do something about it. He knew all about the mess and all about our need for help, which is why he comes. And this is the joy of the gospel, the incarnation, why Jesus appears in human flesh. And you think about God's solution to our sin. As someone said to me recently, you know, God could have used this almighty eraser and just wiped out our sin but he wanted to do something far more personal. It's about God with us, breaking the bonds of our sin. 
It's about God being personal with us. God who, who can reach to the highest heights stoops to the lowest depths. Because he wants to be with us and to set us free. And that means being personal with us. Imagine, as someone was telling me recently, that you're traveling in Europe. And uh, you, you get to London. You're there to see all the sights, but you're lost. And you, you can't quite figure out, you know, which streets to take, what, what bus to get on, what, what train to use. And you just sort of walk in a circle and nothing seems familiar and, and it's not working. And you know where you want to go, but you have no idea how to get there. And so you, you decide to start asking people. And, and people do the same thing in giving directions as we do. You know, okay, go down to the third light. Oh, wait, this is, no, go down to the second. No, go down to the third light and, and then go left and take that three, three blocks and then go right and then another left and another right. And by that time, you, what? Which left, which right? You have no idea. And, and you go to the next person and you know, get on the, get on the uh, fourth street bus that will take you to Ninth Avenue and then get on the third street bus that will take you to Twelfth Avenue and... You know, and your exasperation is growing because you're just sort of still walking around in a circle with no idea how to get where you need to go. And finally, your frustration spills out on the next person you ask. And they say, they start giving you directions and then they stop and say, look, I've got a car right here. Why don't you just get in with me and I'll take you. And it's a completely different thing to say that's the direction you should go. Versus, let me take you to that place. There's something of incarnation in that. But it's not just about God being personal. It's about God being vulnerable. Think of how fragile an infant is. How fragile... God is willing to become in order to set us free. You know, it's an amazing sense of vulnerability that God is willing to take on to set us free. Dennis Kinlaw once asked, was it not possible for salvation to have taken place just sort of unilaterally in heaven? And he answers his own question, no. God had to come down here in the middle of our mess to experience what we experience and be one of us in order to redeem us. He said, you know, Jesus didn't have to go die on the cross to cleanse a leper. He didn't have to die on the cross to make a blind person see. He created that leper and those eyes from the very beginning. And every miracle Jesus performed, he could have done without ever going to the cross. There was just one thing he couldn't do without the cross. Jesus could not turn around the selfishness inside me. And God knew that if he didn't turn me around, I would damn myself by living for myself. And the only way for salvation to come was for God himself to come down here and become a human being. He became one of us. And he said, when you see Jesus face to face, he will look like you look. When you see Jesus, you're going to be able to touch him and feel him in order to make our redemption possible, in order to set us free 
from the chains of sin, God assumed our nature for the rest of eternity. No wonder John says, this is a reason to rejoice. For Christ showed up, as the message says, in order to get rid of our sin. E. Stanley Jones once remarked, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but rather, look what has come to the world. Christmas is such a joyous time, not because of lights and presents, not because people are maybe a bit more caring and loving, but because Christ has come and it is coming, there is forgiveness for our sins, but there is also power to be free from the bondage and the chains of sin. And this is why we celebrate communion this morning. We celebrate what Christ has done in coming. That in his incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection, he has offered us freedom from our sin. Are we ready and willing to receive the freedom that he offers us? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we remember your mighty acts in creating all of this world. We thank you that you made us in your own image. And even though we rebelled against your love, You did not desert us. You delivered us from captivity and you made covenant to be our sovereign God. You spoke to us through the prophets who who looked for that day when justice rolled down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When nation will not lift up sword against nation and neither learn war anymore. Father, we declare today that your name is holy. And we give you thanks for sending your son, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time. To be a light to the nations and to set us free. Father, your son came among us as a servant to be Emmanuel your presence with us. He humbled himself in obedience to your will and he freely accepted death on the cross. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from captivity to sin and death and you made a new covenant with us. As we remember all of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we ask that you will accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us as a living and holy surrender 
of ourselves. Send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ and we may be one body in him cleansed by his blood and we may faithfully serve him in the world and look forward to that day foretold by the prophets and the apostles when the one who came in humility and who comes today in word and spirit will come again in final victory. Through him, with him, and in him. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And in him. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen.